Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Jesus replied, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honour your father and mother and love your neighbour as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away and he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they, gen- they, greatly, sorry, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Thank you. Thanks, Veronica. Good morning, everyone. Um, my name's Kitch, if I haven't met you. Um, and yeah, Nick's given me the, the privilege and the... Um, <laughs> I was going to say burden, I don't know if that's the right word. <laughs> um, no, the, the privilege of um, preaching today on this, on this passage. So before we get started, I'd just like to pray. Um, Father God, I just thank you that as we've looked over the past four weeks at face-to-face encounters with you, that we can understand more about Jesus and we can understand more about God. And Lord, we can understand how much he loves us and how much he wants us to be with him. And so Lord, please, as we come together today, help us to Um, understand your word and Lord we just pray that um, from what we hear and what we learn here together as Yas Community Baptist Church that we can go out into the world to honour and serve you. Amen. Um, Recently I've finished reading the Gospel of Luke and one of the things that struck me when reading that Gospel is how different the Gospels are to the rest of the Bible. There are four books which tell us about the character and person of Jesus Christ. It's not surprising given that Christianity fundamentally rests on the work of Jesus Christ. 
if you were to prove that he didn't live or that he didn't die and rise again, the claims of Christianity are worthless. Even Paul states that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, we of all people are to be pitied. So with Jesus as the linchpin of Christianity, the four Gospels are a vital source of information for us to understand and follow our Lord. These Gospels are the first-hand account recorded by eyewitnesses of the daily teaching, healing and struggles faced by Jesus. It records the discussions he had with everyone from the sick to his disciples to the rulers of the time. And it's on the basis of these recorded stories which we can understand Jesus and understand our faith and the role of the church. So this series is focused on looking at some of those encounters, in particular face-to-face encounters with Jesus. And through those encounters, we are seeking to better understand who Jesus is and subsequently we can understand who God is. And whilst there are many verses which reflect on this, the one which we've been looking at is Hebrews 1 verse 3, which is the first slide. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. By knowing and understanding Jesus and what he is teaching us, we can know and understand God. So in that manner, so far we've looked at several encounters. Last week we heard about the Canaanite woman from Matthew 15:21 to 28. Unlike the religious establishment, she knew that Jesus was the Messiah and she knew the value of the metaphorical crumbs that fell under the table. The week before, we heard about two blind men from Mark, Matthew, sorry, 9, 27 to 31. And Jesus asked if he believed that they could heal them. And they replied that he could. And Jesus healed them according to their faith. In the second week, we heard about the centurion from Matthew 8, 5 to 13, which is one of my favourite encounters with Jesus. And the way that Everyone else thought Jesus had to see them and touch them. But the centurion said, no, no, no. I know. I know you can do it. <laughs> You've got the authority. Just do it. And he did it. Didn't have to see them. Didn't have to touch them. Didn't actually even know where the servant was. And in the first week, we heard about the man who had leprosy. And Jesus showed that not only was he willing to heal him, he was willing to touch him and make himself unclean in order to make that man clean. So today we come to another face-to-face encounter with Jesus. In this story, a rich young man comes face-to-face with Jesus. It is a story which was significant enough to be repeated in each of the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, and I'll refer at times to the other accounts. When I was reading Luke, one of the things that I found helpful was you look for the moving words because it kind of gives you the grouping of how the gospel flows. So in this particular case, if you look backwards in Matthew, you see Matthew 19 verse 1, which says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea on the other side of the Jordan. And if you look the other way in the Bible, you get to Matthew 
chapter 20, verse 17. It says, Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. And in that period in between is where the story today fits. So Jesus was moving out of Galilee into Judea on the other side of the Jordan. And then at the end of that bracket of stories, he's going up to Jerusalem. So essentially, Jesus is on that final part of his journey as he goes up to Jerusalem to be crucified. And in that time, it seems to me that his stories get a little bit more pointed and a little bit more direct with his disciples about what they need to know. So in this bracket of stories, we've got following on from a question of the Pharisees, Jesus teaches them about divorce and attacking those who followed rules and customs rather than the spirit of the law. And following this, Jesus rebukes the disciples for stopping the little children from coming to him, showing that he saw children as as equal value to adults in his kingdom. Then we have the story we're looking at today. And finally, we've got the story of the parable of the workers in the vineyard, where throughout the day at different times, the owner of the vineyard goes to the people and goes to the city gate and asks people to come and work in his field. And at the end of the day, he distributes a denarius to each of them. And it causes a bit of uproar because the ones who'd worked all day got paid exactly the same amount as the ones who'd worked one hour at the end of the day. And it actually flows on from the end of this passage because the end of this passage is the first will be last and the last will be first. But in the middle, we have this story. And I think these stories are predominantly teaching us about the disciples and how the church that they're to lead when Jesus returns, um, before Jesus returns, will be to function. So here we have the rich young man and our encounter with him. So first of all, we've got the exact representation of a successful young man. We're told in verse 22 that he has both grace wealth along with youth, And Luke 18.18 tells us that he is a ruler. So we have a young man with all the status symbols of success, youth combined with wealth, combined with power. Secondly, we don't have a person behaving like a Pharisee who is seeking to challenge or trap Jesus. Rather, we have a man who is respectful. Mark tells us he leant down before Jesus He addresses him as teacher, a term of submission and endearment, recognising his view that Jesus was superior to himself and someone he could learn of. And lastly, and probably most significant of all, here we have a man who is concerned with his own salvation. His question recognises a desire to be religious and honouring to God. What good thing must I do to get eternal life? So as opposed to most of the stories we've looked at, which involved outsiders, such as the Canaanite woman of last week, here we have an insider. He comes not seeking healing, not seeking to trap, not seeking to be a disciple, but with a question. In order to understand the question of what good thing must I do to get eternal life, I think it would be worthwhile briefly to look at the idea of eternal life. In Genesis chapter 3, 22 to 24, we read the consequences of the fall. And it goes like this. And the Lord said, 
that man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So there, right at the start, right at the fall, there's the tree of life, the source of eternal life, and Adam and Eve are banished from it and prevented from getting back to it. And then at the other end of the Bible, in Revelation 22, 1-5, we can read the following. Then the angel of the Lord showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So here we have at the start and end of the Bible the tree of life, access to which is the source of eternal life. In Genesis 3, the right to eternal life is taken away. And in Revelation 22, access to, to eternal life is restored. Eternal life is another term referring to salvation. Sin leads to death and salvation means restoration of right relationship with God. No longer concerned with the effects of death. The man's question, therefore, is of profound significance. Put another way, the question is, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus' response is twofold. Firstly, he challenges the man's presumption that Jesus can tell the man what is good. And secondly, he gives a fairly bland response. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Probably what any rabbi would have said at the time. <coughs> the young man responds, wanting to know which laws... Perhaps he wanted to understand Jesus better. The Jews had many laws given in the Old Testament, and in addition they had laws to tell them how to follow the laws. Perhaps he wasn't sure which ones he had to follow. Or maybe he's trying to minimise what he has to follow and get to the real nub of the issue, like which are the main ones that I've got to do. You also get the impression he's seeking something extra. He feels like something's missing from the law. So he responds by saying which ones. And Jesus seems willing to continue the conversation. He describes him a list of commands related to the second half of the Ten Commandments. You can break the Ten Commandments really into two parts. They basically, the first four relate to how we relate to God and the second six about how we relate to other people. The commands by, repeated by Jesus do not murder do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honour your father and mother and love your neighbour as yourself, mirror five of the last six commandments. 
And the final command is what Jesus gives as a summary of all these other ones. And we'll see that later on. Once again, this was probably not an unexpected response from a rabbi of the first century. The young man's response, however, is interesting. He says, all these I have kept. Well, it is quite plausible that he was not a murderer and likely to fail to meet not likely to fail to meet that standard. But if you take Jesus' view, that it's not just the outward expression, but also the inward working of the heart, it would be very hard to say you've kept all these commandments. I'm just going to briefly look over at Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. So in 25, we read a similar encounter. On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. So that mirrors the first four commandments. And secondly, love your neighbor as yourself, which mirrors those last six. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbour? And I won't read it all, but what follows is the parable of the Good Samaritan, where you have a man who's beaten up by robbers lying on the side of the road. And two prestigious Jewish people walk straight past him. And the third man, a Samaritan, the half-cousins of the Israelites, which they didn't like, which they held funerals for if there was an intermarriage. A Samaritan walks by, And he helps the man up, he puts him on his donkey, takes him to the inn, heals his wounds, gives money to the innkeeper, asks him to care for him, and says he'll pay him more if there's any other expenses when he returns. In verse 36, Jesus says, Which of these do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert of the law replied, The one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. I think what this shows is that loving your neighbour as yourself, it's not clearly defined. It's not like not murdering. It's not a criteria which can be easily met. Rather, it's a goal that can always be a challenge. You may be able to say that you've honoured your father and mother, never stolen, never murdered, never committed adultery or never borne false testimony. So in a technical, outward sense, maybe he did feel that he'd kept the law. But could he really say that he'd never walk past a person in need and not help them? That would seem implausible to me. But rather than engage with the man on his answer, Jesus sets the challenge to truly test his heart. He says, if you want to be perfect, go, sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come, follow me. If nothing else, such a gesture would be an expression of love for one's neighbour, helping the poor, giving away all that he has. The man's response isn't given. We're not told of any further conversation. Rather, we're just told his face fell 
and then he went away sad. He's been hit where he wasn't expecting it. It was not what he wanted to hear. He thought he'd fully be able to meet the requirements, but this is not the case. It's brief and a brutal encounter for the young man. While the outsiders we've met in this series so far have gone away restored and satisfied, this man, the example of success, wholesomeness and power, we're told walks away sad. He's unable to bring himself to leave his wealth in order to receive salvation. As an aside, I, don't, I think it's worth commenting on this whole wealth idea. While I don't believe it forms a biblical command for all Christians to sell what they have and give to the poor, there is similarity for many of us, not least myself, to the rich man in this story. The richest 1% of people in the world hold 50% of the wealth. Or to put a statistic which I saw another way, the richest 62 people on earth combined have the same total worth as half of the world's population. If you took 50% of the wealth of those 68 people and redistributed over the bottom 50%, you'd increase the bottom 50%'s wealth by 50%. Creates a tension which must be grappled with by any Christian. First of all, wealth creates a reliance on it rather than on God. We live on an age of self-sufficiency and comfort and security can be tightly regarded as found in wealth. As Christians, we need to rely first and foremost on God and not on wealth. And secondly, the danger associated with wealth is that by having our treasure on earth, we become preoccupied with our worldly wealth. Jesus makes this comparison in the Sermon on the Mount where he instructs his followers to store up treasure in heaven which cannot be destroyed, rather than treasure on earth which can be eaten by moths, rust, or be stolen. The reason behind this is not that it's bad to have wealth, but rather that our heart tends to follow where our wealth is. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, is what Jesus says. The rich young man had his treasure on earth and his heart followed his treasure. He was unable to give that treasure up for the sake of salvation. It seems that rather than seeking healing, like many who come to Christ do, the man was seeking recognition of his goodness before God. And like the man who Jesus told the good Samaritan, parable of the Good Samaritan to, he was without doubt a good person. And I think Mark's rendition of this story, he says Jesus loved him. In this case, Jesus challenged what defined him. He challenged him to give up his wealth and possessions and his status and build treasure in heaven and come follow Jesus. And despite seeming so eager to gain eternal life, the price was too high for him to pay. Amplifying what they have just seen, Jesus then says the following to his disciples. 
Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples' response to this is astonishment. They say, who then can be saved? The answer follows, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Here in this story we had what appeared to be the perfect candidate for salvation. Rich, showing blessing from God. Power, showing ability and wisdom. Youth, showing exceptional achievement ahead of his peers. Submissive to Jesus as a teacher. A desire for salvation and following the law. And yet this young man walked away sad. The Canaanite woman didn't walk away sad. The leper didn't walk away sad. The blind man did not walk away sad. And the centurion did not walk away sad. These people all came to Jesus, seeking something which they did not have, desiring it be given to them. This man came to Jesus seeking confirmation of his success, only to be unable unable to bring himself to meet the demand. And you can see this in the view of the disciples. If this man can't be saved, if he doesn't meet the standard, then who will? And the truth is that no man or woman can save themselves. It is easier for the biggest animal in ancient Israel, the camel, to go through the smallest opening, the eye of the needle, than for a man or woman to save themselves. As Jesus says in this story, and would later become apparent to the disciples, the only way to salvation, the only way to eternal life, was through him and his death and resurrection. The idea that some people are better candidates for salvation than others is not a biblical one. We are all equally unworthy of salvation, equally unable to be saved by ourselves, but it's through Jesus and his death and resurrection, that salvation is possible. Now here we have a kind of second encounter. Um, the, um, Peter jumps in, and Peter always seems to be the one who jumps in. Um, and he says something quite reasonable, I think. He says, we have left everything to follow you. What will there be for us? And you can see what he's saying. Exactly what you told that young man to do, to leave everything and come and follow me, is what the disciples had done. And Jesus says, At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on the throne, you too will sit on thrones. And anyone who leaves what he has to follow me will have it restored to him and will inherit eternal life. I've heard it said by some people that Christians are only Christians because they're afraid of the boogeyman. They're afraid of this idea that we fear judgment, and that's all that drives us. But that's not the truth. We know we're saved by Jesus, that's why we're Christians. But it's not just to escape that penalty. We are saved to the reward which we look forward to a heaven where what is lost for the sake of Christ is restored a hundredfold, a heaven where there is no more death and disease, a heaven without mourning or pain. 
As Paul says in Romans 8, 18 to 25, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For it is this hope we were saved. But hope that is not seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. There is symmetry to this story. A rich ruler comes seeking eternal life from Jesus and he's told to give up everything and he walks away with his worldly riches. The disciples give up everything they have, they follow Jesus, they face persecution, they lead the early church and in heaven they will be the rulers. They will have what was taken from them restored a hundredfold and they will inherit eternal life. The rich man was trying to earn eternal life. He wanted to know what good thing he had to do. But in the end, there's nothing we do to earn it. Call it salvation, or the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God. Each of those terms is used in this story. It's not something which we can earn. It's something which we inherit. As the children of God, we inherit the promises of God. As verse 29 says, and I'll read it again, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. It's not something earned, it's something inherited as a child of God. So what type of Christian do we want to be? Do we want to be the rich young man type of Christian? Well regarded, diligent in keeping the law, but fundamentally not willing to commit to follow Jesus fully? Or do, can we be the disciple Christian who gives up everything and trusts in God for sustainment, fulfilment, and puts their hope in heavenly rather than worldly wealth? We're not saved by doing the law. We're not saved by our wealth. And we're not saved by our status. As Christians, we look forward to the coming of the kingdom when that which was left behind will be restored 100-fold. But in the present, we cannot be afraid or reluctant to, to, to lose what we have for the sake of God. This could be riches, it could be our time, a promotion or a friend. God has done the impossible for us by providing a way to salvation through inheritance rather than through status and power. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that as we look today at this passage, 
we can see an insider Lord. A man who the disciples thought would be the perfect candidate for salvation. But yet he was trusting in himself and his wealth and was unable through that to give it up in order to to seek eternal life. And Father God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he has done the impossible so that we can all be saved. We thank you that he died on the cross and rose again so that we can have new life. And Lord, I just pray that as we continue to come face to face with God in these encounters, we'll continue to better understand who you are and what you've done for us and that the faith of all of us here would be strengthened by your word and your promises to us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been blessed and encouraged by this message, we'd love for you to become a part of the Yas Baptist family. Log on to ycbc.church to find out more.